and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and it's going to be a little bit of a different show this week because my guest is a radio legend. His name is Jeff London. You may have heard him on NPR. He just wrote a beautiful article for us on Fromers.com. So welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Jeff. Great to see you, Pauline, and happy to talk about this trip to Morocco. Well, let's talk about that. How did you end up going to Morocco, and why were you there? Well, completely surprisingly, I got an email from a press representative for the Moroccan National Tourist Office, and they said, would you like to come to Marrakesh in February? So it was like five weeks from when I got the offer to cover the Marrakesh International Storytelling Festival. And I have, for NPR and other outlets, as a freelancer, covered performing arts for over 20 years. But I had never covered storytelling. So I thought, well, this will be interesting and different. And it certainly was. And the other thing was, I had never been to Morocco, never been to North Africa at all. And so many friends of mine had been there, and in particular, Marrakesh, and said, oh, you have to go. You're going to love the city. You're going to love the food. You're going to have to come back with a carpet, which I did. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I just wanted to find out what these storytellers are all about. And they came from all around the world. So Jeff was kind enough to prepare a segment for us on the Storytelling Festival. So we'll just play that and then we'll come back and chat. The festival kicked off with a buffet dinner in a casbah in the Agafé Desert, south of Marrakesh, and musicians were invited to entertain the guests. The next day, the festival began in earnest. There were 87 storytellers from around the world in 12 venues across the Medina, the old walled city of Marrakesh. After a ceremony where a lamp was lit to declare the festival open, I met one of the founders who told me why Marrakesh is the perfect place for a gathering of storytellers. My name is Zuhair Khaznawi. I'm the co-founding director of, uh, of the Marrakesh International Storytelling Festival. And you are a storyteller yourself. And I am a storyteller myself. When we go to the establishment of the city of Marrakesh a thousand years ago, the first thing that people built is the Jamathna Square. Quite a big square to work as the biggest land harbor in Africa and maybe we can say around the world why. Because when travelers, when caravans come to Marrakesh through the desert, from Timbuktu, from Egypt, from other African sub-Saharan countries, they want to come here first to find a very big souk, very big local markets to sell and buy merchandise. And also they need like big hotels, fondukes, and to find entertainment and food. And the best entertainment we had is storytelling. Why? Storytelling is a way for those travelers to discover where they are, how the people in Marrakesh think, how they do business, and what's their uh, sense of humor, how to deal with them. This is why storytellers back then 
had a really powerful place in Marrakesh. They were really appreciated by royal families and by common people. Zuhair told me that it was a tradition that had been dying out in the past century. And in an age of television, Instagram, and TikTok, this kind of old-fashioned storytelling needs to be preserved. This edition's uh, theme is Ancestral Voices. Why? Because we are celebrating our past, celebrating the fact that we've had really marvelous uh, masters of storytelling that we lost, but their teachings are still here. We are celebrating that, and also we are celebrating the present, the moment that we are in right now. And also we are talking about what we can do in the future, because at a certain point we will be the ancestral voices and we want to have the right voice. We want to have the right echo in the future. One of the community's most vociferous advocates is an English gentleman with a long white beard and long white hair and an omnipresent top hat who's been developing his craft for over 50 years. My name's John Rowe. I'm the artistic director of the Marrakesh International Storytelling Festival. Rose says the kind of storytelling the festival features is not like The Moth, the American public radio show where people tell highly personal anecdotes that are funny or dark. Here, it's traditional stories. It's stories that have been told over and over and over again, over hundreds of years. And what interests me is the way they travel around the world. So, for instance, um, Someone told me a story, they, they, they were very pleased, they found this Moroccan story they thought I might like, and a uh, very short one, and they told me it, and I said, last time I heard that story, that was from a First Nations teller called Gail Ross in Texas, who lives in Cherokee Nation. So those stories just just resound, and, you know, and what stories show us is that, you know, we, it, I know it's a cliched line, but we have more in common with each other than what divides us. And Roe told me how the festival might not have happened, but for COVID-19. I was asked if I'd curate the, uh, a storytelling website, worldstorytellingcafe.com, still going. And no one was doing anything. So I just got hold of every storyteller I've ever worked with around the world and said, do you want to come on? Do you want to do something? And uh, first of all, we started uh, film and uh, then, then we went Zoom and uh, it was much more lively then. And they told other people and they told other people. And then when we decided to do the festival, I just sent them all invitations. I said, who wants an invitation? So we had that, we had a base of over 200 storytellers on the website. And uh, I said, you know, all we can offer you is accommodation. It's, in fact, it's a festival of volunteers from everything from our, you know, uh, our star storytellers to the guys looking after us. The storytellers had to make their way to Marrakesh, where the government, corporations, and business owners put them up and fed them and provided venues to tell stories, lead workshops, and teach classes for some students in the area. Over the week, I met storytellers from the UK, the US, Canada, Egypt, Argentina, Sweden, Greece, Estonia, India, and of course, Morocco. So my name is Akeliubi. I'm 31 years old from Fez, Morocco. Everyone is a storyteller. <laughs> everyone, because everyone tells stories. So everyone is a storyteller. We are called storytellers because we do it professionally. We go with the sequence of stories. I'm not just going to start telling you a story without giving you the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. 
So that's why we are storytellers. What stories I'm telling? Now I'm telling the stories of my master, Ma'allam Mukhlis, Muhammad Mukhlis. He told me the stories that are passed orally. So he learned it from his master, and his master from his master, and that's how it's passed. Uh, it used to be told in, in the squares. Zakia is the only professional woman storyteller in Fez, and when I say professional, most of the storytellers have day jobs to supplement their habit. Zakia teaches English. A lot of the storytellers are teachers or arts therapists. But one Canadian I met worked in a supermarket and occasionally stood in the aisles telling stories. Zakia, who had only met the people in the festival over Zoom, told me she was excited to meet face to face. Actually, I'm so happy because I don't have the chance to meet other storytellers or to listen to different stories. So, as I said, like I love to listen to stories, not to just to, to tell them. I love to tell them, but at the same time, I love to listen to a story that I never heard before. I would love to do that or to just enjoy it. So, he, being here, meeting all these people from around the world, makes me so happy because I'm going to listen to other stories and it makes you also see the difference of the culture like uh, from their stories you see how their culture is and also from our stories you see somehow our culture and over the course of the week I heard myths and folklore tales of kings and queens snakes parrots and monkeys philosophical tracts humorous anecdotes was invited to sing along or recite phrases. Some of the performances took place in traditional riads across the Medina, old houses with open courtyards and elaborate tile work. These shows were intimate, like this story Amy Douglas from England told. So there was a young couple in Ireland, and they were in love, and they were married with joy, and what celebration they could manage. As the story goes on, supernatural elements come into play and happiness is mingled with a deep well of sadness. The biggest venue for the festival was a tent pitched in a corner of the main square where passerby came and listened to stories in English translated to Arabic or Arabic translated to English or sometimes no translation at all. That's a little part of a story by a master storyteller from Marrakesh as part of an unofficial record-breaking 50-hour storytelling session at the tent. No one from the Guinness Book of World Records was there to record it. But the moment it was finished, everyone from the festival, storytellers and volunteers, went to a gala dinner in another tent outside the city. There was music. And dancing and much happiness. I ran into Zakia. From every storyteller I met, I learned something new. So, and that of course is gonna start with me, or or I'm going to use it, or something like that. As well as some other storytellers love my stories or love my style, so they want to do the same or to adopt it. So we're sharing. That's lovely.
Jeff, that was a fascinating segment. And I thought it was so interesting that the type of storytelling is, as you said, not what you hear on the moth. It was not meant to be personal. It was meant to be these, I don't know if the word is iconic or or stories that have lasted generations. How common is that type of storytelling now that we have? Because I always think of that type of storytelling as being pre-printed book or something that was, you know, part of the oral tradition. And now we're in a place where we have books. So it's interesting that this still thrives. Well, I I was fascinated by that. And I I have to say they were a pretty eccentric bunch, (laughs) which I rather enjoyed. I got to meet a lot of them. And one of them, a young woman from Sweden, who was just a recent college graduate, and she had met people over these Zoom meetings. And she said, I felt like I already knew who these people were before I actually met them in person because of the stories they chose to tell, that the stories they told reflected their personalities. And I met another storyteller named Justine Demir. She led, I guess, a workshop on early women storytellers. You know, I talked to her afterwards and I asked her about the kinds of stories she told. And she said, well, I'm autistic. And I have found that I tell stories about outsiders, about people who were not in the mainstream. But I wasn't diagnosed as autistic until I had begun telling stories. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, I'm drawn to these stories. But, you know, there were all of these people who that was their gig. They would go and they would um, look out for stories that attracted them, that appealed to them. Some of them apprenticed with master storytellers. Um, And I love the fact in the first interview you did that uh, that storyteller basically said, look, the reason the festival is here is that this was a place of of uh, commerce, of of uh, the I don't know what was it the um, oh, what's that famous trade route was it? it? It wasn't the Silk Route. The Silk Road is you know went through Afghanistan and made its way to China. But this was I guess some sort of sub-Saharan place, and Marrakesh was just close to the Sahara and the mountains. And this was a place that, you know, a lot of people gathered. And apparently, until fairly recently, you could go to Jema Elfna, the main square, and just on various corners, there were people telling stories and people hanging out around them. But, you know, it's a as I said in the piece, it's a world of TikTok and Instagram. And so it's sort of gotten out of favor. I met one young woman on the square who had studied in Boston for six years. So she spoke English really well. And there was this master storyteller from Marrakesh who spoke, I I think you hear a tiny bit of him in the piece, 
completely in Arabic, and there were just people all around laughing. And I had no idea what the story was, but I knew that he was speaking to people. And I said, so did you come to Marrakesh? Where are you from? And she said, I'm from Rabat. And I came to Marrakesh on a work trip with my mom. And I said, did you know anything about it? And she said, no, I just saw people gathering around this tent. And I'm like, what's going on? And I just loved standing and listening to these stories. She's like, it's just such a new thing for me. (laughs) I thought, well, there you go. Everything old is new again, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there aren't storytellers on that famed square, but let's talk a little bit about Marrakesh and about Morocco. That square, when it gets going later in the day, it is, I hate to say it, but it's in certain ways, every cliche of what you would think you would find in Marrakesh is there. There are snake charmers. There are guys with monkeys. There's, it, it, it's so insane and it's so insanely wonderful too. Yeah. I, and I did, there was one day, you know, I was with a press group. There were two other journalists. There was this a publicist from New Jersey who came along and a woman who was a representative of the Moroccan National Tourist Office. And we went on various tours. But one day I just said, look, leave me alone. I just want to get lost Hmm. in the Medina, the walled city. And of course, I went to the square and there were, you know, horses and carriages and there were motorcycles and there were snake charmers, and I swear, and I talk about this in the article. I see the snake charmers. The snake charmers see me wearing <laughs> wearing my New York Mets cap, and they're like, "Come on, come on, come on!" And there are these black deadly cobras, Ooh. and they're one guy is playing this uh, instrument called a gaita, which is like a ancient oboe and you know he's like come on come on come on get your picture taken and you know he put these two harmless snakes around my neck and he took my camera and he went out and he kind of framed it so that you could see me kneeling with the snakes (laughs) the cobras and when he asked for the tip afterwards I felt a little bit hustled Well, you didn't know the tip was coming? Well, I knew the tip was coming. (laughs) I just didn't know that he kind of wanted so much for the tip. But I thought, you know what? This is not like taking a picture with Elmo on Times Square, you know? Right. No, no, no. And that's, that's a big part of it. You go to the huge square and then behind it is this labyrinthine uh, uh, market where there are hundreds of shops. My advice always, and I gave it to you, to anybody going to Morocco is, if you need any new furniture, if you need any new rugs, if you need anything, bring the measurements, because what you will see there will be handmade, high quality, so beautiful. And even with shipping costs, it's going to be less expensive. So tell me, how did you end up buying a rug? And are you sure you got a handmade one? I am absolutely sure because if I look at the underside of this rug, you can see that it was handmade. But I knew I just wanted a small rug, a three by five, to put on the back of my sofa. And, uh, you know, I was kind of walking around, and I talk about this in the article. There is this concept 
in uh, Marrakesh and I guess really all throughout Morocco of blind architecture that you will see a doorway or an arch and you walk through it and then all of a sudden you take like one or two turns and then there's an enormous space in the in the in the case of the Riyads you know there will be an enormous courtyard in the middle with a fountain or an orange tree during one of the, the storytelling moments, an orange dropped from a tree oh, wow. at a climax <laughs> of the story, which I don't know, seemed providential or whatever. But anyway, I'm like walking and getting totally lost in one of the souks. And I see this little, little sign for carpets and I go in and I turn left and I turn right. And then all of a sudden, enormous room. Hmm. And, you know, again, I'm a guy wearing a New York Mets cap. <laughs> and the guy is like, oh, you want a carpet? You want a carpet? And he starts pulling out with his two associates carpets and rolling them on the floor and telling me, oh, well, this is, you know, made by... Berbers up in the Atlas Mountains and blah, 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 and yada, yada, yada. And his, and I'm like, well, I only want a three by five. And we did a little haggling because that is what you have to do. And, I, and he said, well, I take credit cards. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Great. So we did this in Turkey and we actually ended up regretting the rug we got because it was, we later discovered it was totally, you know, manufactured somewhere else, probably China, who knows. And, but they gave us such a show. We were there with our two young children who they gave magic carpet rides to, which meant that they sat them on the carpets and flung them up and down and they gave us apple tea. And by the end, you had to buy. These were the best salesmen I've ever been in the thrall of. Did they do all that for you there? I didn't get any tea, which, by the way, they call Berber whiskey in uh, in Marrakesh because, you know, because it's a majority Islamic country, there is alcohol, but very few people drink it. So it is this highly sweetened tea that is poured into a glass from about a foot above. It mm. is quite a show. And everywhere I went, people said, Berber whiskey, Berber whiskey. But I did not have Berber whiskey. But these guys were like, they just knew how to do it. And I mean, some of these carpets were gorgeous. And I got, he told me that the carpet I got was an old one, which meant maybe 20 years old. That I don't know. I certainly don't know the provenance. But he did, I, I said, well, can you ship it? And he said, oh, this is so small, you can take it with you. So I had to later on that day, go out and buy what I referred to as a carpet bag. <laughs> it was a bag, leather, but with a carpet. And I was able to check it and a lot of the other stuff that I had purchased, including a big box of dates that I've been kind of giving out to friends mm. and in little bags. So beyond, uh, so you went shopping, which is the classic thing to do in Marrakesh. You also went to a history museum, which we didn't do. And I'm wondering, did we miss something? It was a great museum. Now, mind you, all of the displays were in either 
Arabic or French. Hmm. French is the secondary language. It was a protectorate of the French government from, I think, 1912 to 56. So there's French influence everywhere you go in Morocco. But I was able to kind of make my way through and figure out there was armaments, there were costumes. It was a big Riyadh um, with this amazing fountain in the middle. Mm. And they also had contemporary art exhibit, which was terrific. You know, the thing about Islamic art, of course, is that it's not figurative. It's basically geometric shapes. And here there were some pictures with faces Mm. on them. And some some paintings that actually had the faces blurred. But it was interesting to see that. So, I mean, I didn't spend much more than, I think, 45 minutes wandering around this museum and just engaging in the beautiful architecture and the artifacts and the contemporary art. But it did feel like a kind of wonderful discovery Mm. as we were walking around. I don't know if I have to say this, but often I'm asked when I'm talking about Morocco is whether it's safe, whether it's a place that welcomes outsiders, because people are nervous sometimes about going to a Muslim-majority country, which they don't have to be because hospitality is so ingrained uh, in in the countries that, that practice uh, the Muslim religion. But I was there, I can't remember how long after Arab Spring. But Morocco really had a very different Arab Spring than most of the other countries of that region in that there was no violence. Instead, the king did something pretty surprising. He actually gave more rights uh, to the people of Morocco and it became more of a democracy. Did you feel like it was a stable, safe place as you were walking around? I did. I mean, I have to add the caveat that I am not a single woman. And I did find that when I was walking with some of my colleagues on the press trip, that there were people who were kind of hassling them. It wasn't, it didn't feel like it was potentially dangerous, but it just felt like it was happening a lot. There were like one or two times when I was in the Medina in Tangier. This guy came up to me, saw my Mets cap. He said, oh, from England? And I said, no, from New York. He's like, New York? Oh, well, you know, I have an American teacher who's teaching me English. Let me take you around the Medina. And I was like, well, you know, I'm just kind of going where I want to go. He says, well, I can take you to a shop, you know, that my cousin's own. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And of course, he took me to a place where they sold carpets that was actually even a nicer place than the place where I had purchased the carpet in Marrakesh. And I have, and they, and they start rolling them out and they start doing the sales pitch. And I'm like, uh, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I already bought the carpet that I'm taking home, but thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I could tell that this young man was a little bit resentful that he'd gone on a wild goose chase and I gave him, you know, some dihram as a thank you for, you know, (laughs) trying to bring me into his uncle's (laughs) (laughs) carpet warehouse. But, you know, c'est la vie. But I never really felt like I was in danger anywhere. Even when we were kind of wandering through these 
alleyways and streets. I was a little more in danger from the motorcycles and the donkey carts that were going through these very small alleyways in Marrakesh. That wasn't true in some of the other places that I visited. So you mentioned you went to Tangiers. Uh, Where did you go and which city did you like the most? Oh, well, I think Marrakesh because I spent a lot of time. But had I had more time, I would have probably spent another day or two in Tangiers. Um, I was there because I I got an assignment to write about the high-speed rail system uh, that has been built in Morocco. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is basically the TGV from France. Um, And the trains, which used to take, I think, close to five hours to get between Casablanca and Tangiers, now do it in two hours and 10 minutes. And one section, uh, which is a fairly long section, they go as fast as 198 miles an hour. Wow. So that is just astonishing. I mean, I'm telling you, Amtrak could learn a couple of things from uh, Moroccan railways. Wow. Uh, it's it's a system called the Al-Barak. But it took me in two hours and 10 minutes from Casablanca to Tangiers. And, you know... When I heard you talk at the travel show, you talked about the difference between being a tourist and being a traveler. And I really was conscious about that, you know, and that's why I wandered the Medina of uh, Marrakesh by myself, because I really wanted to be a traveler. But I only had six hours in Tangiers. (laughs) So one of the first things I did was I took one of those double-decker buses and that just gave me a lay of the land. And once I got the lay of the land, then I just climbed up onto the ramparts, went into one of these museums where there was literally nobody but an orange tabby cat that followed me around, (laughs) uh, you know, overlooking the Atlantic, the port. And then I just kind of made my way around. I found another just fantastic museum called the Museum of the Casbah. And One of the things I love about Moroccan culture, they talk about their confluences and that it, you know, there were the the Berbers, the Amazigh, who were the first people who were there. Although when you go to Tangiers, you know, it's it's even earlier than that. You're talking about um, Peloponnesians and Greeks and Romans and, you know, all of these uh, European countries that came because it is right by Gibraltar, the opening to the Mediterranean. Um, So it's got all of those influences. And frankly, sometimes you walk in Tangiers and it looks as though you are on, I don't know, you know, the Côte d'Azur or something. Um, It's really fascinating, but it is absolutely an Islamic country. And there's a fantastic Medina and, you know, great views of the Atlantic Ocean. And, oh, I've going back to the confluences. Um, so this museum of, uh, of uh, the Kasbah shows the various influences, not just the Islamic influences, but there was a rather large Jewish community in Morocco. They all got kicked out of Spain in mm-hmm. 1492. And, uh, you know, so I the uh, the Hebrew cemetery wow. in Tangiers, and and interestingly, most of the places that had uh, Jewish communities, 
various wazirs built their palaces in the Mela. It's called the Mela, uh, which is where the Jewish community was, so that they could protect the Jewish communities. Oh. So I found in several museums, uh, you know, Jewish artifacts, Torahs, and, you know, uh, Stars of David. I was fascinated by that. And that seemed to be something that the Moroccan people I met just took greatly to heart. I actually, I I hope I'm not going to mess this up, but I was reading some article somewhere about the fact that for centuries, uh, Muslim communities and Jewish communities lived side by side with no problems, and that actually during World War II, the, the Nazis very specifically went into certain Muslim-majority countries and tried to sow uh, a distrust and, and dislike between those two communities by putting into place things that, that you know, were blamed on, on the Jews. So it, it was, um, I think that's a really interesting lesson to take away, that, that they really were very much part of the same community in these places. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I really got that sense in visiting these museums and just seeing, and, and even just talking to people, you know, uh, who were at the museums or just people on the street. Yeah. Now you also, I saw some of your photos. You you had fun seeing some of the wacky surprises of Morocco, like goats that climb trees. Can you talk about those? Well, our little press group, we went to Essaouira, this beautiful seaside uh, town, harbor town um, on the Atlantic. Um, but on the way, it is the only part of Morocco and the only part of the world where they build, where they uh, have argon trees. So you know, if you're somebody who's into cosmetics, uh, argon oils are used in all kinds of you know body washes and shampoos and face creams and whatever. And they also are used in in food. Um, but the trees only grow in this particular part of Morocco on the way to Essaouira. And so we're in the van and the van pulls over by the side of the road. And there are all of these goats and bunches of them are in the branches of the trees, just happily in the branches of the trees. And there are, you know, a few guys who are holding kids and you know for a for a tip <laughs> you can hold the kid and get your picture taken with the goats and of course I didn't bother with the, getting the kids but I got <laughs> pictures with the goats and apparently they absolutely love having the goats in the trees because the poop fertilizes the trees. Oh, I didn't know that. Because uh, I've actually seen those 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 goats too. And it's it's just a surprising sight, like something out of Dr. Seuss to see these goats up in the trees. But they do it naturally. It's not like they were trained to go up in no, the trees. They just go up in the trees and they seem completely comfortable in the trees. About three or four miles from where we actually saw these goats in the trees, we went to a women's collective that shows you how argan oil comes out of 
basically the nuts from the trees and they showed how they separate the the hearts from inside and they grind them up and then they squeeze this and you know which is why these argan oil products are not that cheap but uh you know they're very labor intensive and it was all of these women who were kind of sitting demonstrating how they did it uh and I remember from my visit, I everybody who sees the goats also sees the Argonne women. I think that's part of the trail that they take you on. And I think it was a women's collective. I think they yeah. were very proud that these women had had jobs and were supporting their families and that this was considered a, a real social good. Oh, yes, absolutely. You really had an opportunity to to see them create the Argonne oil. And then, of course, you had the opportunity to go into the shop and have the demonstration of every single product from the Argon oil. And believe you me, every single person on our trip came back with uh, a whole bunch of... Uh... Argon products. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to discuss? Oh, well, <laughs> this was the silly thing that I did on the trip. But I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Keddy. It's no. it's It's about the cats of Istanbul. And somebody had told me that wherever you went in Marrakesh, and as I discovered in Essaouira and Tangier, and even a little bit in Casablanca, but that's kind of a big city, you see cats on the street. And these are not cats the way you and I and all Americans know cats. These are working cats. You will not see a rat or a mouse anywhere in these medinas. And they are clearly well-loved. They're clearly well-fed. They're not, you know, big fat cats like we have who don't go outside. They're kind of lean and they're very friendly. And so I just fell in love with the cats. They're on the backs of motorcycles or, <laughs> you know, curled up on carpets where the carpet sellers are, wh wherever. And I just took a series of pictures and I put them on Instagram. And then I just checked. I thought, well, I'm going to put a hashtag cats of Marrakesh. And there was a whole cats of Marrakesh hashtag. And every <laughs> single place I went, there was a cats of. But it was really kind of fun. And, and I enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm a crazy cat owner. And, uh, you know, that was fun. I did make it a point to stop at a food stall that was not geared toward tourists. And part of it was my looking for the cats of Marrakesh. And there's this little cat sitting by the food stall. I found out that his name was Mumu. Yeah. And the reason why Mumu was by the food stall was people would eat food and feed Mumu. But I met this really nice young man named Omar who kind of showed me at the steam table all of the different foods. And I don't know what possessed me, but I got some lamb tripe, Ooh. which was kind of inedible. Yeah. Not for Mumu. Uh, and I got some <laughs> sardines that were deep fried that were delicious and some fried eggplant. And I really was the only non-Moroccan at the, at the shop. Mm. And it, it was wonderful. I do have to say that we didn't get into 
the food, uh, which you could very easily get into. But, you know, because I was with a representative of the Moroccan National Tourist Office, we got to go to all of these restaurants in Riyadh's that were unbelievable. Some mm. of them were on the tops of, on, on the rooftops where you could look over the Medina. A lot of them were in this kind of blind architecture, and then you would go through a curtain and It'd be an enormous room, and we had flavorful tagines and couscous. And at one place, we ended up with something called a pastilla, which you can have with chicken and fish, but as a dessert. And this is kind of a a little... uh, Layers of dough baked. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of phyllo dough, but not exactly. And it's covered with a milk, sugar, almond, and a little bit of orange flavor. And, you know, we would leave a lot of stuff on our plates because they gave us a lot of food. Our group just destroyed that. We just, (laughs) we ate it all. And it was really funny because we were saying, this kind of tastes like frosted flakes. (laughs) But it was just delicious. Oh, my God. Yeah, Morocco in many ways really has it all. It's an incredible place. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Thank you, Pauline. I had such a great time and I had such a great time telling you about it. (laughs) And, you know, now I have to go to Fez, inshallah, because I have to... Hit them all. Exactly. See them all. (laughs) All right. Well, that is it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching cable.